between how we think about ourselves now, the laid-back, lucky country, and then actually what Australia looks like in reality. And in reality, we're not laid-back. We're the second highest user of antidepressants in the OECD. You know, we're not irreverent. Comedy is now more on the Hannah Gadsby side of things than on the Barry Humphrey side of things. You know, we're not anti-authoritarian. If you looked at COVID, we were, we were the most happy country to go along with this sort of awful authoritarian regime. And, and so there is this cognitive dissonance in Australia. And what it means is I think we're a country where at the moment we don't really know who we are anymore. Welcome to the New Flesh podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro and with me is Ricky Allpark. Ricky, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Yes, very good, Ricky. I, I tell you what, I, I've been thinking, I don't want to sit around and just talk to you. All you do is like, you know, I know what you think and you do a podcast. So I thought, why don't I talk to someone else who has a podcast? So that's, you know, I mean, are you into that or...? Well, I am a fan of podcasts. I do run my own, but I also listen to a lot of podcasts. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty into it. Yeah, good. Good. Correct answer. Well, we always tell you the truth here on the New Flesh podcast, and the truth is that we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show. We read all of the reviews, by the way. Uh, we're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about the show. And please tell your friends about the show. If they don't like what they hear, are they really your friends? It's in the words of the Donald, I would call them stone-cold losers. Excellent. Well, with that in mind, on with the show. Will Kingston is the host of Australiana, the flagship podcast from The Spectator Australia that covers Australian politics and culture. Will also has a day job, which we'll ask him about in a moment. Uh, Will, welcome to the New Flesh. G'day, guys. Good to be here. Now, it, it was my task today to write your bio, and I read your LinkedIn profile, but I could only make sense of the podcast bit. Will, what on earth is an experienced activist? Yeah, I can only make sense of the podcast bit as well, don't worry. Uh, it's a fancy way of saying management consultant, basically, uh, and and it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting journey to how I got from from management consulting to management consulting with a side of of podcasting. Uh, but I, I think you know for for the audience here, they're probably less interested in kind of you know my my kind of business career as more how my business career influenced why I wanted to start having these conversations. And I, I remember probably the first thing kind of that came into my mind, I remember uh, I was working at PwC when the marriage equality uh, vote, the Gay, Gay Marriage Act was was kind of uh, plebiscite, I should say, was, was all going through. And I remember the lunch and learn sessions, uh, which were basically propaganda, telling people to support it. Uh, I remember when it went through that on every floor there was champagne being popped. And look, I voted for for uh, for uh, in support of gay marriage. I'm I'm you know pretty classic libertarian. You know, do what you want to do, basically. But I just thought there was something a bit off about how kind of there were corporations that were forcing kind of a particular ideology onto their their employees. And it's something I've thought more and more about. I think it's something which is really obvious in the voice debate. And it goes to this wider, I guess, culture at the moment where there are particular institutions that are telling you how to think and what to say. And if you don't, I guess, uh, abide by those particular talking points, you can be shamed, you can be cancelled. And and this feeling of frustration just kept building and building. And I said, oh, look, I've got to try and get it out somehow. 
and uh, and and the uh, the microphone seemed like as good a uh, good an option as any way to to try and vent that frustration and to try and say those uncomfortable truths that that just aren't being said as much as they should be. And d- does your day job provide some sort of cover for your work as a political? political podcaster because I, I ask this because if you were working in any sort of creative field or if you had a job in HR, your podcast would would at best get you shunned from the lunchroom and and at worst it could get you fired. Yeah. So so I work for an American company and I spend probably most of my time now in the US. Uh and that is the shield because most people in the US aren't particularly invested in whether or not Australia has you know <laughs> has a, a voice as part of their constitution. Uh, but it's something I've thought a lot about. And the short answer is if I was working for, still working for a PwC, let's say that, uh, I, I would be quite worried. I would be quite worried. Uh, you know, and, and this is something like the podcast has been going for, for a few months. So it's still early days. Uh, but it's enough. You've done enough. Like, like, like it's, it's early days, but if, if, but I, the guest list is enough to, uh, that'd be it. Like if you just rolled into PwC, I mean, how, how do you think that would manifest if you did work at a place like that and you just did two months and you were talking to Posey Parker, Sydney Watson, all these people, and you just were turning up at your desk and not talking about it, but how do you think that would go? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It could very well manifest that a nosy kind of HR manager who's read a bit too much Foucault says that this is, you know, that words are violence and that Will is is promoting violent talking points. Now, I'm a big believer that that even if that was the case, I don't believe it is, even if that is the case, it's better to get those conversations out in the open and to hear those sorts of things. And that's how you actually is the, is the best way to, to address those problems. That sort of nuance actually doesn't work particularly well in corporate Australia at the moment. So it's a really interesting question. I, I don't know is, is the answer, but I've got to the point, something has snapped in me where I go, you know what? I just don't give a shit anymore. I'm just going to say the things that I, I, I believe. And if, you know, I was to get fired down the line or a future job opportunities down the line were to to uh, come at that cost, it is now, probably for the first time in my life, a cost I'm willing to, to bear. Well, let's talk about your podcast, uh, Australiana for the Spectator. How, how, did the, how did the project start and, and what's your vision for it? I wrote an article for the Spectator Australia a couple of years ago during COVID. You know, everyone was baking sourdough bread and trying to do handstands and, and I thought oh, I might try and do a bit of writing and the the article was the death of the Aussie larrikin which I think kind of Barry Humphrey's death recently put that into sharp focus once again the the angle that I took on it was uh, not just that those classic Aussie values of larrikinism anti-authoritarianism irreverence all that sort of stuff it's not just that they're fading away it's that they're fading away, but Australians just don't seem to notice. I think kind of if you actually spoke to Australians, they'd still associate those values with themselves. And so it's almost this cognitive dissonance. There is this gap between how we think about ourselves now, the laid back, lucky country, and then actually what Australia looks like in reality. And in reality, we're not laid back. We're the second highest user of antidepressants in the OECD. You know, we're not irreverent, you know. Comedy is now more on the Hannah Gadsby side of things than on the Barry Humphrey side of things. You know, we're not anti-authoritarian. If you looked at COVID, we were we were the most happy country to go along with this sort of awful authoritarian regime. Um, and, and so there is this cognitive dissonance in Australia. And what it means is I think we're a country where at the moment we don't really know who we are anymore. 
And and then that kind of got me thinking, well, I'd like to start having conversations that perhaps indirectly start to shed a bit of a light on who we are as a country today. I, In order to do that, we're speaking to Australians, but we're also speaking to a lot of Brits and, and Americans because I think our culture is downstream of American and British culture. Uh, and, 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 and I took this idea to Rowan Dean because I think the spectator Australia is a really good brand that aligns with those sorts of conversations and that traditionally it has been irreverent. Uh, it has been unafraid to say some of the things that, that other people or other institutions are afraid to say. Um, and, and it's got a great kind of heritage and history. You know, it's the oldest surviving weekly magazine in the world. So, um, and it's the oldest surviving weekly magazine in the world, which I think they recognise, you know, print media is 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 only going in one direction and they need these sorts of, of mediums to, to keep their messaging current. In terms of the, the vision, uh, keep building it out and, and seeing what happens. Like I, I, I'm, this is a, a passion for me. It's not a, not a business at this stage. So for me, it's just every week trying to find someone interesting to to have a chat with. And if that leads somewhere, you beauty. But I'm not um, I'm not saying that we're going to be the next trigonometry at this point. But um, but uh, it's just about you know having fun chats with people and trying to again shine a bit of a light on where we are at as a country. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about um, our, our, our loss of identity, I guess. We've spoken to a number of, of guests from the US and from the UK who have this idea, that still have this larrikin idea of Australia, and they're shocked when we tell them that, that, that things are going woke just as they are in, in the US and in the UK. And so, yeah, I guess that brand overseas is still there, but, but here very much... Uh, yeah, there is a sense of of the death death of larrikinism, and maybe we could could get your thoughts on the passing of 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 Barry Humphreys, who was probably one of the w- most well known of Australia's larrikins. Yeah, I'm not saying they're the same or on the, they had the same gravitas by any means, but I found some analogy to be drawn with the death of the Queen, and by that I mean in the UK. I think a lot of the people were upset, not just because of the death of the Queen as a person, because they felt that some values that the Queen embodied were going with her, you know, quiet dignity, stoicism, duty. These all felt like she was the last great person that embodied those things. And I felt somewhat similar when when Barry Humphreys passed away, because I felt like he embodied some of the Australian values that are now fading as well. And, you know, we mentioned larrikinism and irreverence and a rejection of political correctness, which we would now call wokeness. So so my my feeling initially was this was almost kind of a, a it could be a a line in the sand moment for Australia to say, are the Barry Humphreys of this world the people that we want to put up and on a pedestal in the future, I think they very much should be, or is he going to be the last of a dying breed of people? And what replaces that is an interesting question, and, and it's, a, it's potentially a very scary question. Well, I think it's worth weighing into uh, some of the fallout. So a while back, uh, Barry obviously had a lot to do with the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, helped, set, helped put it on the map, and... Uh, he had a, a an award named after him for 19 years. He made some comments that uh, about uh, transgenderism being a, fa- a fashion and some some other things like that. I think you can imagine what what they would be. If not, go and check them out. And the award was uh, ta- the the name was changed of the award to the Melbourne International Comedy Award or something like that. For a b- bunch of creative people, that's uh, that's quite staggering to to just. Uh, default to that rather corporate title but uh then just most recently uh we've had 
you know, he, he he's passing in the final days of the, of the festival. The, you know, the festival had a, a moment to, you know, to actually, you know, they could have really run with it. Instead, I, I'm to understand they, you know, sort of dropped the ball and um, and have done all sorts of things. There's been interviews with the with the festival organisers. They they've denied that they cancelled him. So they've said, oh, we we never cancelled him. We never can. I got, I read those articles. And it was basically we never cancelled him. And if we did, it was warranted. And then we've had uh, comedians like Sammy J, uh, a millennial comedian, write a sort of an, a, an apology for, you know, trying to get a middle ground between the two. I don't know if you read that article yesterday, uh, amazing piece really on many levels. But what, 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 what's your reaction to this? Because I think this is a, fan, a, a fascinating meta-narrative for a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. Obviously, t- totally spineless on the part of the, the comedy festival, which almost goes without saying uh i reflect on just kind of how comedy has changed uh and you know in some respects i think they're probably pandering to most of their well if not most of their audience to most of the comedians that would now be at that festival so i think the reason that they were so spineless and didn't put out an immediate tribute to barry humphreys was because they would have been afraid that most of the comedians that were going to be performing on the final night of that festival would have boycotted and many of them probably would have uh, I, I spoke to Constantine Kisson uh, and Francis Foster on Australiana, and they both basically said when they were on the the comedy circuit full time before trigonometry, uh, if they were saying the types of things they're now saying on their podcast, no one in London would have given them a gig. Absolutely no one. Um, you know, in order to be a stand up comedian now in Sydney, in London, in New York, you either have to play the Hannah Gadsby card. And just do the whole identity politics humor and, you know, oh my God, how terrible are white men and, you know, how tough is it to be gay or to be black or whatever? Or alternatively, you just have to go pure observational comedy and talk about, you know, (laughs) how annoying kind of airline food is. Uh, There is no place to challenge norms and the great norm of our time is now the woke agenda. And it's terrifying because comedy was traditionally the comedy was traditionally the the art form that challenged and subverted kind of the, the the societal norms. It was the thing basically that you relied on to call out the bullshit that you put up with in all other elements of your daily life. It gave you that safe space to laugh at the bullshit that you normally tolerate at work, that you normally tolerate from the mainstream media. And now we've lost that in comedy and there isn't really another art form that replaces it. I think it's really, really sad because I think there isn't really important role for political satire and for comedy to to call out the bullshit. And I don't think there's many people doing that now. Well, th- there are a few comedians out there that that do this and Dave Chappelle is, is one of them and I saw him play at Rod Laver Arena uh, when he was in Australia a few months ago. Um, do you think that sort of on-edge comedy, is that now only reserved for huge names that can't be cancelled? Yeah, it's, it, it's funny you say that. I, the, the term uncancelable was uncancelable was in my mind as well. And the short answer is is, is yes. Um, I, 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 I'm trying to think of an example of a right-wing comedian with a subs- who, who isn't uncancelable who has a viable career? There, there may be a few, but really, it's 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 almost impossible because you don't get the platform. You don't get the comedy um, comedy show administrators 
think there's probably a cooler word than administrator they'd like to use, but that's the one that comes to mind. Uh, who give you give you um, give you gigs? And again, I, I think it's I think it's really sad. Um, I think it's why it's really important for the Chappelles of this world, for like the trigonometry guys, to be doing what they're doing. Um, and and the other thing I would maybe add as well is that. There are a couple of, I guess what you say is traditional lefty comedians who are actually now starting to go, you know what, some of the stuff, some of the institutional capture from this new left is wrong. You know, Bill Maher is the the card-carrying example here. 20 years ago, he was the biggest lefty you'll ever meet, but he was the lefty in the traditional sense of high taxes, you know, expanded role of the state, help people out, you know, and he's kind of gone, well, that's not the left today. The left today is a woke agenda, which I certainly don't agree with. In fact, I think it's ri- ridiculous. And he's actually had, and again, I think to your point, he he has a big enough platform that he can afford to get away with that. But I think we probably need more of that traditional center left to go, you know what, I agree, you know, in in, in the traditional tenets of the left but I don't agree with what it's turned into. And unfortunately, I think it's it's difficult to do that these days because politics is increasingly becoming a sport where you just support your team as opposed to saying, well, I like these bits about my team and I don't like these bits. I, I don't know if you, you read this article I mentioned by, by uh, this comedian, Sammy J, um, but it was basically he said that he'd won a Barry Award and that he owed a lot to Barry uh, but he was also on the board when they renamed the award. And he, he basically, his main thesis seemed to be that the festival changed the award to to uh, service the artists because they were, you know, offended. He, he, he had a lot of talking points about, you know, how a trans person would, would feel, this archetypal trans person who's, who's just, you know, suffering in silence while everyone's, I don't know, putting a jack boot on their knee, on their their neck or whatever, and um, so he he made some big claims in there. He but he said that, or, 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 or I'm sure some of you reading this might agree with what Barry said, but I'm guessing that most people who 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 would who would who would think the uh, say the sorts of things that Barry said would be over a certain age, and that everyone who 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 you know essentially agreed with the trans the the trans activist agenda or whatever would be under a certain age. He's drawn a line in the sand of of generation a generational change there. Do you, do you think that there's any any uh, credence to that? I think there's a generational element, but I still think the vast majority of people under the age of 40 have that common sense view of of gender and on the trans debate. I think the vast majority of people under the age of 40 still go, you know what, I don't particularly want a biological man in kind of a, a women's locker room, particularly if there are young girls around. I, I, I think that would be 95% of people under the age of of 40. So, and I think it's probably 99% of people over the age of 40. So I think it's there, but I think it's, it's less so, you know, the fact of the matter is, and you guys would have spoken about this with Kelly J. Keane, when you spoke to her, all of this stuff around the trans debate was, was stuff which we all were in societal wide agreement about only 10 years ago. And a very small minority have allowed us to capture the institutions that put out all of the sound and the noise to make it almost feel like there is more support for these quite fringe positions than what they are. And if, if I can draw a link to another conversation we had on Australia Anna with a guy called Peter Klein. Peter is an uh, US academic who wrote a fascinating paper called Why Companies Go Woke, uh, which got kind of global attention in business sections uh, last year. And his argument is 
there isn't a groundswell for these sorts of woke policies in companies. 95% of people aren't all jumping up in unison to put pride flags up around the office. What it is, is if you think about a company in terms of three layers, very generally, you know, the C-suite at the top, frontline at the bottom, and middle management in the middle, it's not the top that's driving this sort of cultural shift. You know, CEOs are fundamentally responsible for the shareholders and for to, to the board. They're thinking about profit maximization most of the time. And most of the time as well, these are up older, often white guys who probably, you know, haven't been too closely following the culture wars. The front line isn't isn't driving this because most of them just want to provide for their family, clock in, clock out. It's this glut of middle management in companies that are trying to make their jobs more purposeful than they otherwise would have been. You know, the HR manager that doesn't want to just kind of fill in contracts anymore. They actually want to say that we are, you know, making a more inclusive environment for, for our employees. Or the marketing manager who just doesn't want to flog Coke cans anymore. They want to, you know, change the world by embracing or encouraging people to embrace diversity. And I think that same principle applies across both companies, but also in the media, maybe less so the media, but also across broader society. There is a group that is trying to increase their relative power in companies and in broader society. And in order to do that, they have microphones that can amplify the sound and therefore make it appear like more people actually support stuff which is very fringe than what is actually the case. Do you think this is a, a sort of a, a, a growing trend where people are sort of the, making a paycheck, bringing home the bacon is not enough anymore. They need they need something more in their life to give themselves worth and they want to change the world. They want to make the world better. Um, and, and maybe there's not, not so much of a national mission anymore. Like there's nothing you can get behind in terms of your country, you know. So, so I guess that, that battleground ends up being your work where you can get more than just the paycheck. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. Uh, think, about, think about this. Not only is patriotism everywhere apart from the US, it, patriotism is now kind of passe. It's kind of almost, you know, it's, it's a bit cringe for a lot of people. So you're right. You lose that as a kind of organising principle around which you shape your value system. Religion has declined dramatically in the vast majority of the West over the last 50 years. Uh, I'm not a religious person, but I can see how it provides an organizing framework for how you want to live your life and, and for the values you want to have. So what I think is if you take away country, if you take away religion, there's this vacuum, right? And, and I think this vacuum is now being replaced with some really bizarre, weird things. And I, I must say, I, I, and this is something we've talked about a lot on Australiana, I think the right, you know, I think the, the, there are two groups to blame, the right and the left. The left is to blame because they've filled this vacuum with, I think, what is really harmful ideologies in the form of, of the series of woke ideologies that we've been talking about. But the right is to blame as well, because I don't think the right has done enough to say this is an alternative framework for the values that you should you should be thinking about in terms of how you live your life. If I'm a 20-year-old bloke at the moment and I am hearing in some corners that you should be chivalrous and, and manly, and I'm hearing about toxic masculinity on the other side of the coin, if I'm seeing all this woke stuff, but I'm also hearing kind of people like me saying, you know, this woke stuff is nonsense. I'd be bloody confused, to be honest. If I'm a young bloke at the moment, I don't really have an organising framework for how I want to live my life in absence of religion or, or nationalism or, or whatever. So I think more needs to be done from 
from sensible centre-right people to say, these are not this is how you should think, but these are some kind of ways you should think about organising your values. Um, because in absence of providing a positive vision like that, all the negative stuff of wokeism, which admittedly brands itself very well, you know, warm and fuzzy feelings and all that, is very appealing to a young person. And until we give them a better alternative, they're going to keep lapping up this rubbish. For sure. Well, I think one of the other aspects is maybe that it's it's so hard now for young people to aspire to that more traditional uh, traditional life of owning a house and having a family. I mean, that's that's one of the things too, particularly in the US, like unless you're fortunate enough to go to a big university and, or to land sort of a, a big career, it, it's it's getting becoming almost impossible to get a foothold in in the uh, the housing market. I mean, do you think that that plays a part as well? I, I think it plays a massive part and not just, I think, for young people. I think there's a bigger point here in that, I think in many respects, life is easier than it was 100 years ago, but I think people feel like as well it's harder, and in some respects it is harder. So a fact that I like to return to, which I think says more about the US and politics in the US than any other, is that there is only one demographic in the US where life expectancy is actually decreasing year on year, and it has done for the last, I think, 10 or so years, and that is non-college-educated white men. Now, if you think about it like that, suddenly someone like a Donald Trump makes a lot more sense because you're going, bloody hell, I'm living in the Appalachian Hills and, you know, don't have access to a healthcare education. Um, you know, my, I am, chances are I'm going to die younger than my father did. You know, of course you're going to be disenfranchised. Of course you're going to be angry and you're going to start looking for solutions in really, really troubling places. Now, again, cost of living is probably a, 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 a um, is on the same along the same lines there, if not quite as intense an emotion. But you, if you're a young person in Australia going, my parents relatively easily bought their first home. It's now almost an impossible dream for me. That leads to disenchantment. And I think you've just got so many groups now that are going, this is perhaps the first time in human history where it's going to be harder for me to, to live my life than it was for my parents in modern history. And that leads to people lashing out and it leads to people looking for solutions in bad places. And I think that's something which 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 we are now seeing the 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 outcomes of in Australia, in the UK, and in the US. Let's talk about your political background, Will. Were you always interested in politics, or are you a bit like us in that politics and the culture wars have sort of hit you in the face? I, I I've always been interested in it, but my views on the importance of politics have changed. So I initially thought that the kind of you know, probably when I was younger, aspired to be a political leader or to run the country. Now I couldn't think of anything worse. Uh, but but more than that, I think that the power of politicians and the power of our leaders is just much less than than what I initially thought. Which is why I actually I don't get too too phased about liberal or labour in Australia, for example, because I don't think anything really substantially changes. Um, I, I I think. Across the Western world, we now have just this sort of glut of administrative bureaucracy that sits beneath the elected leadership layer that almost effectively runs the world. And I'm not going into kind of conspiracy theory stuff. It's just bureaucracy and, and administrative, the administrative layer of, of governance basically just ticks over and ticks over regardless of, of, of government. There was a, a- Yes, minister. Yes, Minister. Yeah, it was an analogy that, that someone said, which I've forgotten who it was, but they basically said, think of politics as the storm at the, above, the, uh, above the water on an ocean 
And underneath, think of the administrative bureaucracy as the as the coral and as the fish that are swimming around in the reef. And if there's a storm going on above you, you kind of feel the water gently move from side to side if you're that fish. But really, you keep swimming along and the world keeps going. And I think that's kind of how I see politics in, in, in most Western countries, uh, maybe to a slightly lesser degree in the US, but particularly in Australia, Look at, look at the last 20 years. Has a substantial, life-changing reform really been introduced? I think the last one was probably the GST, if you think it really hard reform that most people didn't want initially, but then you had to sell. NDIS, you could make that argument, but really everyone wanted it and it was just another way to, to, to shell out more money. Big reform is, is now next to impossible in Australia. And so as a result of that, politicians just tinker around the edges. So for me, I, I kind of go, I think the culture war stuff is more important because that is stuff which actually impacts the day-to-day lives of people and impacts our basic freedoms. But in terms of the politics that, that sit kind of at our at our executive layer, for me, it, it, it is just less and less important because I don't see change happening for, for, for the better through them. And really, I don't see them having enough power to do things that are terribly dangerous either. Well, you mentioned the West. Let's talk about the West for a second. It said that there was a great awakening a few years ago, and I suppose we could say roughly that this means a shift towards radical social justice and or a focus on contested ideas of diversity and inclusion in the major institutions, government departments, for-profit companies, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, music, journalism, everywhere. But overnight, it seemed that everyone was suddenly convinced that we were now all living in the antebellum South. And... um, (laughs) We'd like to know your personal experience with this shift. You know, when, when did did where where were you when you heard the shot? You know, did you uh, have you felt this coming? Did it happen at once? What do you think? I noticed it uh, most acutely, or perhaps it really slapped me in the face when I was living in New York and I was single at the time, and I was having a whale of the time on the the various dating apps. And Hinge was the uh, was the go to dating app at the time. And I remember looking and swiping and swiping and swiping. And I would say every fourth or every fifth profile that you would swipe through in New York had something like, if you are a conservative, don't bother swiping right. Or if you support Donald Trump, you know, you disgust me, don't bother <laughs> swiping right. And I, I reflected on this and I went, there was a time in human history, uh, and I think probably our parents' generation, where you could not just be civil, you could be friendly, you could love people who have fundamentally different views to you. And just by looking at these profiles and these people going, you know what, I have no interest in understanding you as a human if you have different beliefs to me. I just went, that's such an um, interesting insight into the way that we think now. Uh, and, and I think it's a very sad insight. You know, even I think when I was 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 younger in my teens, there there was an enjoyment that came out of debating people who were different to you. You know, I was a big debater at school. I loved it. I was one of those nerdy debating kids. And that was such a a thrill to be able to kind of discuss those different ideas. And now I think we just have this mentality of if you have a different belief structure, you're not just different to me, you're a bad person. And, And I think that's just such a corrosive thing that's happened in society. And I now see it more and more but but that that moment on hinge where i just went you know what there's no chance that that we could ever ever be in a relationship um because you just believe in lower taxes or you believe in in a different set of political beliefs that kind of hit home to me that 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 the world has changed and it's changed for the worse 
Well, I think I think that highlights the uh, the importance of uh, of long form media like podcasts, like what we're trying to do, where we actually talk to people and we tease things out. Uh, you, you don't really get that on mainstream media, where you have three minutes with with a host on a Today Show somewhere. Um, do you think that alternative media will sort of pull us back to the centre? Not easily. Not easily. I agree with you. You in principle that it is it is a really good thing, but I wonder. You know the, the the sad reality is that that um, hopefully both of our podcasts will get to a point where we can we can influence the masses, but neither is it quite quite there yet. And indeed, unless you Joe Rogan, that that's the case for for almost everyone. Um, so so I think I think obviously it's still very much kind of non traditional media is is not mainstream for, for you know almost by definition. But I think the other thing I, I'm and I'm look I'm not a scientist far far from it, but. I just think about how my brain has changed, I think, over the last 20 years, and I think a lot of people would say the same. I remember as a kid, as an eight- or nine-year-old, staying up for hours reading a book, and I try sporadically to get back into reading, and after five minutes I'm picking up my phone. And this is something which, you know, I could do four hours as an eight-year-old. You know, something, I don't know, I don't know the science, but something has happened to the way that we, we our, our, uh, to, to uh, our attention spans. And and unfortunately, that means that that people are less likely to engage in in longer form media like longer articles. Um, podcasts are a bit different because you can almost kind of half listen to them as you're doing doing something else. And I guess that also means you're not fully engaging with with the ideas. But I think it'll be very hard for for this to turn around because I think there is a a you know neurological thing going on here as well as a cultural thing, and that's um. That's something which probably can be teased out with far smarter people than me, but it's I think it's, it's it is troubling. Well, I feel like we wouldn't be doing our show if the ABC were doing their jobs. <laughs> there, there's there's just no way they would platform the guests. You know, you're interviewing, for instance, Posey Parker, Sydney Watson, the, you know, Peter Klein. The list goes on. Uh, there are a couple of exceptions. You know, if a, a keen-minded people would say, "Well, uh, Gigi Foster has been on the ABC, but she certainly wasn't allowed to do the kind of monologuing that uh, a left activist or a slam poet on Q and A, you know, would would be able to do." Um, people want to hear robust discussions about thorny topics. I mean, that, that we certainly do, and that's why. But we started with doing what we do. So why why won't the ABC give us what we want? Because eighty percent of journalists are left leaning by by almost by definition is is the very simple answer. Um, it, I think we can actually kind of go into conspiracy theory territory when we start thinking about why the media is overwhelmingly supporting kind of one side or one narrative, or why the you know the arts more generally perhaps is is overwhelmingly kind of left-leaning going back to our comedy discussion before i actually don't think it's that that it, it is a conspiracy i think it is just these are industries the creative industries the media industries uh attract generally more left-leaning people and if you want to make money which is associated more so with the capitalist right you'll go and become a banker or a lawyer you won't go and become an abc journalist so um I think I don't think there's any conspiracy theory to it. I think it just means that probably if you went into the ABC newsroom, eighty to ninety percent of them would all vote the same way. Now, obviously, that's going to mean that that when it comes time to produce shows, there's going to be an ideological bias. The problem is that if you're Sky News and you and you've got you know a bias in the other direction, they're a private company. They or they're 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 a, they're, a, they're a company. They can do what they they want. The ABC as as almost all of our listeners would know, has a charter that 
obligates them to be fair and to be independent. Um, and and unfortunately, they're just not meeting their charter. And and I would add, in addition, uh, I think in part, like they're trying to uh, they're trying to kind of create this centre left identity or left left identity because it's harder and harder to justify having a publicly funded national news and entertainment network in 2023 when people can get their entertainment from Netflix and they can get their news from any number of a million different sources. In the 1950s, the, that, there was still a, a, a justification for that. There's no justification for having a publicly funded national news and entertainment broadcaster in 2023. So perhaps they're trying to say, well, look, fair and balanced and independent news isn't going to sell and it's not going to to make us relevant. In order for us to be relevant, we need to have Stan Grant on Q&A, you know, spouting off on whatever it is he wants to spout off on. Um, so, so I think there's part of that as well, that they, they, they're trying to, to justify themselves in, in, in a market where they probably don't have a, a role anymore. I think I think also like if you looked 50 or 60 or 70 years ago and you looked at the people that worked at the ABC none of those people would have university degrees whereas now if you're a journalist you've gone to university and you know I I would like to see some industries and I've mentioned this before to people on the podcast I'd like some industries like journalism to go back to more of an apprenticeship uh, deal where you might be 18 19 and you you shadow someone you start in the mailroom you work your way up that sort of thing. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, how can we make make get, get universities out of the picture a bit? It's a good question. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I absolutely agree with it. The problem is, I think you know, successive governments in Australia, again, probably this is a, a broader trend, have made university out to be the kind of be all end all goal. If you're a student, and somehow if you choose a trade, for example, or an apprenticeship, that is a lesser option. Now, it's patently ridiculous. I'm still paying off bucket loads of money from a law degree I'll never use. And there are plenty of people who would have gone straight in to become a plumber who are in an infinitely better financial position overall than, than, than I am now. Uh, it, so I think I think there is a, a branding problem for, for higher education and that it's just, you know, people who are not, who should not be doing degrees go to university and get a useless arts degree or, you know, a useless law degree as, as the case may be. Um, and I think that that branding has been been in part generated from our parents and grandparents' generation who believe genuinely that you know it was that sort of kind of that 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 thing to aspire to, but they haven't realised that that now everyone has a degree. It's you know it's, it's it's less 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 valuable, and it's also been propagated by by successive governments who have tried to push more and more students through to to uh, to to the tertiary sector and it's been pushed uh, by by the universities themselves who have continuously dropped entry requirements so people who shouldn't be doing particular degrees are now getting to do those degrees all in the name of trying to, to make money um, and and you know you add all those things together and you can see why someone who probably should be doing an apprenticeship as a carpenter is instead going and doing a, a commerce degree at UNSW or, or something like that do you think that uh, yeah, just to just to put a cap on the ABC um, mm-hmm. Do you think that the ABC has a class problem? So I've, I spoke to a producer not too long ago and they, they had to do some, uh, I don't know, like a diversity statement or something like that about some project they were working on. I think I'm pretty sure it was for the ABC. And my suggestion to them uh, was that in their diversity statement, they should focus on, they should say, well, we want to hire people. Um, we want to focus on class. So we, we, you know, we want to everyone. I always tell them. I say, look, 
you know, why don't you just go into that, that room and say, okay, everyone put your hand up. Who went to university? And when all the hands go up, say, all right, I need 60% of you or whatever to get out of the room right now, you know, or I need, you know, did you grow up in on a coastal city? You know, okay, great. I need you to leave the room right now. You are fired. You are not working on this show <laughs> at all. Now, the, obviously, this person hated everything I had to say. Um, they looked at they, and they looked at me like I was essentially the Q, the Q shaman. And so, but but what's your what's your view on this on this sort of unspoken or rather forgotten issue of class uh, when we talk about the the left and the ABC and and uh, and the like. Yeah, it's, it's because the word diversity has been hijacked to mean de- demographics diversity as opposed to diversity of thought uh, or, or, you know, in some respects, diversity of, of, of experiences. Now, diversity of experiences is different to, you know, racial diversity because not all black people have had the same experience. You can't tell me that, you know, a, a young black person who went to an Ivy League school is going to be in a better position, for example, than, than someone with kind of white parents who were, were drug addicts who grew up in the Appalachian Mountains. It's just not the case. But to your point, um, institutions like the ABC, the only way they think about diversity now is through diversity of of demographics, race, gender, uh, sexuality. Um, and, and, and the irony of this is, the great irony, is that their push for diversity in the way that they see it is driving homogeneity. It's driving one worldview. It's driving one way of thinking. It's something I think about a lot. It's the most perverse contradiction in that by getting people who believe buy into this sort of identity politics narrative, you may very well get 50% men and 50% women and hit your uh, gender quota. You may very well get a mix of religions. You may very well get a mix of races, but you're overwhelmingly going to get people that think the same way. Now, the way that, that I think about uh, those sorts of, of targets, I'm generally not in favour of them, but if they are going to be there, they are there because the assumption is that if you do come from a different cultural group or you do come from a different gender, you have a different worldview as a result of that, and therefore that should create diversity of thought. I see it as an input into creating diversity of thought, not an end in of itself. Now, it's obviously not creating that at the moment, and you can see the way that the ABC reports on things is the classic example, but you can extend this out to educational institutions, to the media, to businesses. It's, it's, it's rampant everywhere. And I think, I think until we start thinking about diversity in the way that we should be thinking about it, we're going to keep getting kind of homogenous institutions that all think the same way and do the same things. Well, we'd like to uh, talk to you about uh, The Voice, uh Perhaps in part because uh, yeah, you, you know you, you you hit this thing uh, a lot on Twitter. Uh, unlike a lot of people, actually, you're 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 actually one of the the few public uh, figures who is speaking about it. But perhaps we need to talk about talking about the voice first because we've had some uh, trouble getting people to talk about the voice on on the podcast. We had a hugely qualified, reputable person who we respect uh, 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 enormously. They had to pull out of appearing on the show. After after talking with uh, uh, the people they work with, um, for various reasons, so we've had referendums before, but but this feels different. What, what is it about this debate that that is so radioactive, even to talk about? A few things. So so I I did a little Wikipedia scan a couple of days ago on the history of referendums in Australia. I don't recommend any listeners do it. It's an incredibly dry read. 
But that's kind of the, the the point. If you look at the referendums in the early 1900s, my God, they're boring. It's about kind of, you know, the driest parts of the Australian constitution. The two sexiest referenda, referenda that we've had are the last two, a republic and then uh, and then, then now the voice because they're kind of those big ticket social uh, or issues that align with kind of broader cultural narratives and, and social narratives. Um, so, so I think that's that's the first thing. This is inherently a more divisive topic than the vast majority of referenda that have gone before the the Australian people. The second thing is, and this is why I imagine you're struggling to get people on to talk about it. There is this awful, awful insinuation that if you don't believe in a change to our constitution uh, and you plan on voting no, you must be racist. Now, this is something which I have just I, I it, it has saddened me and it has it has made me incredibly angry. Um, you know th- there are plenty of very prominent Indigenous leaders who are who are, vote, who are going to vote no. We've got Maura Mundine coming on Australiana. That's going to be out tomorrow for the the shameless plug. Who is who is obviously very heavily involved in the the no campaign. Um, you can be for Indigenous people and against the voice, and I, I just don't think this is quite there yet i think we will get there over the course of the campaign where more people will have the courage to come out and say you know what i think that what is going on in remote indigenous communities is unacceptable there are obviously problems we need to solve but this is not the best way to do it in fact this is something which will be counterproductive not just on a principled level but it's counterproductive to to indigenous outcomes and i genuinely believe that this is wrong in principle and i think it's wrong in practice as well well, speaking of plugs, you, you wrote a great opinion piece uh, recently about The Voice titled Australia's Misguided Voice. And I guess f- for our for the benefit of our international listeners, we should probably explain what The Voice is, which is basically it, it's a proposed body chosen by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with the power to make representations to parliament on various issues relating to those groups. Uh, and yeah, as you say, we will be voting on that uh, sometime later this year. But you made the great observation about guilt and desperation being a bad mix in decision-making. Can, can you unpack that for us? Yeah. So it's no coincidence that the vast majority of people who are advocating for the voice are predominantly white. They're predominantly kind of in the elite institutions that we've 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 hit on already you know they're they're in the abc they're they're in kind of the mainstream media they're at kind of the 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 in the corporate sector these are people who i think and you know who who struggle with with the, the concept of white guilt that things that happened in our past that we had nothing to do with we need to atone for those things and this is something which, again, is nothing. Uh, this this isn't uh, unique to Australia. For for international guests, if you live in London right now, then you would have seen the same thing in how particular people try to come to terms with their colonial past. If you live in New York right now, you're seeing the same thing in terms of how people try to come to terms with slavery. This is our equivalent of those two subjects. My my view is a very simple one, and it is you know we are not accountable for the things of, for the the acts of our ancestors, and it's it's as simple as that. Now there is a separate conversation to be had around: is this a good thing for improving the here and now? And there are huge problems in the here and now, but I think we need to separate that from well, bad things happened in the past, and this is a way to to make good on on some of those past injustices. And unfortunately. I would say most of the people, whether consciously or unconsciously, who are supporting this are doing it because they are guilty about what has happened in Australia's history 
They ignore many of the wonderful things that have been part of Australia's history, and they think that this is a way to to atone for that. When really, you know, we can't change, you know, what happened, you know, pre nineteen oh one, or indeed at any stage before before for today. Well, it's hard to get behind this thing for, for for many reasons, but but one one aspect that seems to be a big talking point on both sides is that there's a lack of detail about how this advisory body would work. Do you think that that will ultimately sway the vote to no? Yes, I do, and it certainly was what one of the factors that crippled the Republic referendum in in twenty years ago. Uh, and I think as well that the reason why there is a lack of detail is because if you do put the detail out there, it's pretty scary. Now. Uh, the big argument you will get from the yes side is that one of them is that this is just a represent. You know, this body will only make representations. They will only put forward opinions to to uh, the executive branch on particular issues. When you dig a bit deeper, you realise that it goes beyond that. And there's two reasons why this goes beyond just being a representative body. The first is, and I'm not going to go into detail because it is fundamentally boring, and I, I wanted to leave it as soon as I left law school. And it's administrative law. And that is basically that the government is accountable for the way in which they make decisions, for due process being followed. And if you have standing, that means that you can call out the government if they haven't followed due process, not just the government, but but uh, the administrative bureaucracy. So the, the, at this stage, from what I can see, from all of the submissions I've read, the voice will have the ability to make representations uh, on anything from from. The line that's going around is submarines to to interest or to 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 taxation policy. Uh, now think about that a bit deeper. Number one, this will slow down the running of government because they're going to need to get detail from the executive branch well before that policy is actually announced. If they're going to make a representation, they need to have a say before that actually goes to the public. So before every substantial act of policy, perhaps any act of policy, you're going to have to then put a draft before this this nebulous body and say, well, all right, give us, an, give us a, a point of view. Then you're going to have to hear their response and you're going to have to have this to and fro. I can't see how this doesn't just grind the wheels of governance almost to, to a halt. But then even if you, you, you don't take that into account, every time that a government policy is made and, um, and it potentially doesn't uh, or, and the government doesn't want to take into account the representations of, of that particular body, um, there's going to be insinuations that they're racist. And unfortunately, we're already seeing that the, the debate at the moment is the perfect example of this. If you disagree with an Indigenous point of view, you're a racist. Now, no government's going to want to, to, to risk that. So I think you're going to see, um, I think you're going to see kind of pretty much every representation made by this group being being adopted in some way, shape or form. And I think the easier ones for government will go first. If I think if this gets through, there's no way that Australia Day uh, is, is January 26 next year. Absolutely no way at all. Um, but I think there are other kind of really easy things where, you know, if you play that scenario out, that voice body, of course they will say, you know, that is a matter of interest and they will say, yes, it is the view of Indigenous people that the date changes play that out. And if the government would say, no, we disagree with this newly elected body that we've just gone through a referendum to put in place, um, that they will be labelled either incompetent or they'll be labelled racist. No way they're going to say no to something like that. And you play that out for all of these major issues and you can see that that the idea that this is just representations 
may be right even in, in on the paper, but when it comes to political realities, it's just not. I'm to understand that the the voice is really just part one of of a trilogy we didn't ask for. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know in which order this this Justice League trilogy comes, but it's like voice, truth, treaty, or something, some kind of uh, mixture of these things. I'm 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 fascinated by this because, um, firstly, it sounds very long. Um, and it sounds like an, an endless, this, this second one, truth, really fascinates me, uh, particularly in light of what we now know is um, the truth of many people, of, of many of the activists at outfits like the ABC and on the left side of politics, uh, my truth, subjective truth. So uh, what's your view on, on this, this entire, this sort of struggle session trilogy that we're, we're looking, looking down the barrel of? Well, there's, there's no... There's no end goal, right? You know, you, you, we can't just say, oh, well, you know, the, the way you've framed it is almost like it's step one, step two, step three, but there will never be people who will be satisfied that their truth is being recognised or observed. So the idea that, you know, that this is this is a linear process is, is wrong. This is something that will just go on and on and on. And you'll always have people who will be perpetually, uh, perpetual victims um, so, so I think, I think, I think that's concerning. Uh, and, and I th the thing that really annoys me is that this is painting a picture of Australia that says that we are, we are inherently systemically racist or that, that there is this division between Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians. And it's just not the case. We are overwhelmingly a kind hearted people. We are not a racist country. The fact that we have uh, problems in remote Indigenous communities is a separate conversation to that. But by insinuating that we need to get all of this on the table, that we need to deal with intergenerational trauma, that we need to, you know, uh, we, we, we need to, to almost atone for these sins, it's this black armband view of history which keeps telling us to be negative about who we are. Now, we talked earlier in the podcast about Australia's identity crisis at the moment, and I think this only makes it worse because... You know, for example, there are a lot of people who now just say if you've got a Australian flag on your Twitter feed or on your Twitter handle, you're a racist. You know, um, patriotism is almost seen as being kind of a bit ooh, extreme far right. Uh, and, and I think this whole narrative just adds to that as opposed to, to saying stop treating Aboriginal people differently. And this, I'm quoting Warren Mundine from this podcast coming out tomorrow. Stop treating them differently and say we are all Australians and deal with problems on the basis of need, not because some people with a certain skin colour happen to have that problem. Um, that, that, that's why I think that, that this whole voice issue, not only are you not a racist if, if you choose to vote no, I think you fundamentally believe in the concept of equality before the law, the most anti-racist position you can take. As a side note, there's a guy that lives a couple of blocks away from me who has a, an Australian flag and a flagpole, and he's had to go so far as to set up two security cameras around this thing, and he's even got a plaque kind of explaining why he has that out there. He's he's a I, I think he's an Irish immigrant, and he used to be in the army, and and he loves Australia, he loves democracy. But I always walk past this thing, and I think it's so sad that that guy had to go that far, just just for the Australian flag, you know. Um, Extraordinary. Now, yeah, it's crazy. And you mentioned, you know, what the end goal is. And I think the end goal should be 
trying to fix what's happening out there in regional towns and remote communities like Alice Springs, because what's happening out there is horrific. And, uh, you know, especially on a domestic abuse front with, with high numbers of domestic violence and, and child sexual abu- abuse being, being cited, it, it seems like the right decision in many cases would be to remove children from those situations and find appropriate care for them. But, but governments won't do this because they don't want to be accused of being part of a second stolen generation. Now, if the tables were turned and there there was abuse happening to white children, which which no doubt there is in some unfortunate places, they would be rescued from those situations and no one would question this. Like, how do we have this conversation and, and how do we separate the historic stolen generation from modern child welfare policies? Courage. Courage is the, is the short answer because you are going to have people who will say that it is racist to, to do that and it's wrong, but it's you need to have courage to be able to, in a sensible way, push back. Uh, if I pull out again, this is, I think I'm always interested in what's kind of going on in other parts of the world because, and I think it's a risk to look at the voice and some of these things in Australia in isolation, because if you take the example just there, the exact same thing's going on in the UK with the grooming gang scandal in the UK, where over the last 20, 30 years, thousands of young girls have been raped in primarily Pakistani ethnic minority groups, and almost no one's been prosecuted. The issue hasn't gotten almost any attention, a bit more now, but next to no attention in the media because people are afraid of being labelled racist. And there's also some people who go, who try and excuse this on cultural grounds and saying that, well, it's just a matter of cultural difference. Same same thing in, in Australia. There are too many people who are afraid to have difficult conversations about race because of their, their fear of being labelled racist. There isn't an easy answer in, in my view other than, in a really sensible, clear way, saying that that these are the facts and we need to, to act on those facts. Um, now, again, unfortunately, the, the the world in which we live doesn't lend itself to nuanced common sense debate and so it's a really hard thing to do. Do you think, Will, that... Because I think we were, we were talking to Anthony Dillon about this and, and I asked him about how to how get his crystal ball out and, and if he thought that... Because people don't understand the detail of, of this this refer- of the voice of the proposal, that they'll just go in and and say and vote um, no. And he said, well, no, actually, quite the opposite. He feels that because they they don't know the detail, they'll go but they'll go on emotion and go in and just vote yes. Do you, don't don't you? I mean, look, I've been staggeringly wrong about our politics for years now so much so that um i got i gotten everything wrong like for years like you know i thought i thought bill shorten was gonna win like you know i, I, I mean i'm I've, I've got a terrible record i've just got this sinking feeling that everyone is going to go into that booth and say i'm not racist yes yeah i i, I mentioned this to to one mundane and and he responded that that's not a concern of his and the reason is the great Australian invention of the secret ballot. So you can you can be spat at outside the polling booth. You can be called a racist. When you get in there, no one knows how you're going to vote. And once again, we have historical precedent here, recent historical precedent, and that's the, the Trump effect, where one of the reasons why the polls got Trump so wrong was because a lot of people were a bit concerned to tell a pollster on the phone, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. But as soon as they got into the polling booth, that changed very quickly. So I, my, my instinct is if the polls are even within five or six points to the yes side come election day, I think that that will switch uh, in the polling booth because you will get that silent vote of people who are uncomfortable saying they're going to vote no in public. 
but then in the privacy of the polling booth, they will 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 turn. So I think I think it, it, the yes vote needs to be significantly out ahead in the polls come election day for for this to to get through. And if you look at the polling and the trend, like when when Albanese first announced that there was something like eighty percent popular support, that's now going down into the sixties. If you look at the polling at the same stage of pretty much every modern referendum, when I say modern over the last forty years, this is a terminal terminal trend. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not going to be responsible for people losing their money. Obviously, I'm choosing to vote no, but I also very strongly believe it will be a no vote because I don't think the public support is where it needs to be at this stage of the campaign for it to pass what is a really hard bar of of a double majority. You know, to, uh, you know. Um, so so so, uh, I think there will be be a bit of that, but at the same time, I think you will, that will be counteracted by the fact that we are going to see. Um, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people kind of, a lot of silent no voters. Well, I, I don't know how you feel about this, Will, but I find referendums very tedious. I, I feel like we've talked about, all we've talked about for months is the voice. Um, and I was thinking, do we need some sort of formal event? I'm thinking like an Oxford debate where each side puts together a crack team of debaters. We do the debate, then we all go and vote. We're done with it. How does that sound? I think it'd be a great idea. Unfortunately, I don't think it'll 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 stop uh, it'll stop the uh, the the attention. This is the other thing with with this referendum is I just kind of go and don't for a second take this as me not saying indigenous issues are important, but this particular way that we're choosing to address it in the greater scheme of things, I can think of a hundred things that that I would rather have a referendum on tomorrow. And I think this is something which can very easily be legislated. Um, so so I, I just. You're right. This sucks up every ounce of political oxygen for a whole year. This is all of Albanese's political capital. If this doesn't go through, then no substantial reform happens for the rest of Albanese's first term because he's already sucked out all of the goodwill from from trying to get a voice over the line. And I just kind of go, this is a country that has systemic problems that we need to address, both within Indigenous affairs and more broadly. Why are we doing it on a body which no one has been able to establish will lead to better outcomes for Indigenous people. Not a shred of evidence. I always put it to, to people on, on Twitter, show me the links in a causal chain between Indigenous kids not going to school or Indigenous women getting raped and a voice and that happening less. And no one can just say step one, step two, step three. They say, oh, well, if you give them a say in their own affairs, that will lead to better outcomes. I'm sorry, that's not a high enough bar to change our constitution. It's this kind of vague waffle. And until I hear someone actually really clearly lay out, this will let mean that the hideous rates of sexual assault in Indigenous communities goes down, or until I hear that more Indigenous kids are going to go to school through this, then there's no reason in my mind to, to go through this whole whole process. Um, well, uh, not to circle back to the ABC, although I, I could bash them all day. <laughs> Um, I heard I heard a report the other day. Like it was, a, it was actually a good piece of reporting. It was about um, hex. So you should listen to that since you have still a, a, a hex debt. I'm assuming. <laughs> um, so uh, it it was good reporting, but the the, the report began with I'm so and so from uh, this is so and so reporting from Gadigal lands, and then she went into her story, which had nothing to do with um, anything. Now a few things for uh, there. I was I was sitting there going. Is she in Sydney? Do you mean you're in Sydney? What? What is that? What you mean? Like, why are you saying? Like, I actually don't know what because it wasn't an indigenous um, 
story, an article or anything like that. She was just letting you know at the beginning of this little report. So, you know, what do you think of the acknowledgement to country, uh, indifference to the, you know, and the welcome to country, I suppose? And and do you think that this is going to play um, any role in in the in the re- in the referendum? Potentially, uh, tangentially, perhaps. So, so I've got a theory. I'm convinced now that the editors at the Australian kind of a, a sipping whiskey of a night, maybe with cigars, and they're kind of chortling themselves going, how can we take the piss without really looking like we're taking the piss? And the recent interview with Marsha Langton where the title was something like, vote no and you will never get another welcome to country in Australia. Mm, it just went that. viral on Twitter <laughs> because everyone was going, you bloody beauty. Yes. And, and that's, again, that's how, that's probably how 80% of people think in Australia. They go, you know what? We agree that there are problems with Indigenous people currently. We acknowledge that the, 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 the heritage they have, but the fact that we have to go through this virtue signalling bullshit ritual at the start of every meeting before every kickoff, you know, across before every Anzac Day service, you know, that's that's just beyond the pale because Australians are, are, are I think, quite pragmatic, practical people, and I think they, they realise that this is... Is, is completely and totally meaningless because it doesn't come with practical action attached to it. You know, if you're going to do the whole welcome to country, then by extension that means that that particular business should be, if not giving up the uh, the the lease for the officers and handing it back over to, to Indigenous people, at the very least doing a heck of a lot more than most companies currently are. But, it's you know, it's, it's entirely a, a virtue signaling exercise. And I think, you know, the problem is a lot of people, if I was to come out and say, you know, I, I don't like welcome to country rituals, then instinctively so many people who disagree with me will go, oh, you horrible racist. And I'm not, and most people aren't. They're just people who hate virtue signalling at the expense of real, tangible action. And and unfortunately, Indigenous Affairs is the classic example with the apology being, you know, the start of this or maybe a good example of this, of politicians just being really comfortable promoting symbols as opposed to getting their hands dirty because it's harder because it's it's sometimes uncomfortable because it requires really difficult policies and so i i I think um there there is there is an element of that in this voice debate as well this is a warm and fuzzy thing it's not really getting down and dirty and solving tough problems in, in indigenous communities well, speaking of virtue signalling, my wife drew my attention to this. She recently went to Australia Post. She had to get some sort of parcel to deliver something. And on the back there where you can write the address of where you're sending this parcel, there is a section where you can put the traditional place name of wherever you're sending this thing. So, you know, I just wonder, you know, one Wurundjeri Street, Wurundjeri Land. I mean, p- people don't use these sorts of place names in this sort of context it has no practical sort of solution. Um, do you have any thoughts on just how insane some of this virtue signaling is? Of course it is. The thing is, if if you're a person and you want to refer to where you live that way, go ahead. I couldn't care less. But it's the way that it has been weaponized to fit particular political agendas and the way that it's been weaponized for, for companies to, to brand themselves is what I have a problem with. And I think you can say the same thing about LGBTQ plus whatever. Uh, most companies are doing this because other companies do it. Great example, which most people would have seen, is whenever uh, Pride Day, Pride Month rolls around, you get those memes where you see the way that companies have changed their logos for their Facebook page in the West, 
and they haven't changed their logo for Facebook pages in 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 the Middle East. And it goes to show, well, your principles aren't kind of contingent on where you are. You either have principles or you don't. Uh, and, and I think kind of most people, even if they're too afraid to say it out loud, see that when they see kind of things like, you know, I live on Cameroon country because, uh, you know, you, you're not actually really investing in tangible change. And, and if I could add, you know, uh, Tony Abbott is a, is a really prominent uh, voice in the no campaign and, um, you know, and he's someone who would call out this sort of virtue signaling stuff. And a lot of people would just go, oh, it's Tony Abbott. Why should we have to listen to him? Or it's just a white guy. Why should we have to listen to him? This is someone who for the last 20-odd years has gone out and lived in remote Indigenous communities for a week or a couple of weeks. He has uh, seen remote Indigenous communities and spent more time there than any other non-Indigenous politician of the last 20 years because he's actually interested in real, real change and actually getting his hands dirty and having a look. Now, unfortunately... That's not in vogue. You know, it's easier to change your social media profile. It's easier to do a welcome to country. It's really hard to go to an in-road mode indigenous community and reduce rates of alcoholism from X percent to X percent. Very, very tough. And most people can't be bothered to do it. So it's a way for them to still look like a good person without actually doing the tough stuff. Well, we want to give you the final word, Will. We're, we're mindful of, of your time. Both our podcasts talked uh, about, you know, talked. we both talked to guests who say things that uh, would get many of our uh, listeners shunned or fired, as we've said. So uh, and just an open-ended uh, question to you, you know, what, what's your view on the speaking of uncomfortable truths today? One of my favourite quotes came from... Uh, from I heard it from John Anderson initially, and he basically said the only cure for cancel culture is courage culture. Uh, and and I think the great thing about the thing that what you guys are doing is is I think kind of courage is is and this will sound like I'm kind of some you know D grade Tony Robbins, but but you know courage is a muscle, right? And, and I think the more that you exercise it, the more that that you, you get better. And I think that's the same at a collective level. The more that you hear people just coming out and sensibly pushing back from really silly positions, the more it encourages other people to be courageous. Now, you don't have to do that. You don't have to point out uncomfortable truths by being hugely provocative. You don't have to be a dick about it. But you can just say, you know what, there is a narrative here which, to be honest, I don't believe in. These are the reasons I don't believe in it. You're free to believe what you want, but I'm not really going to go along with that. Not enough people at the moment are happy just to say what I think is a pretty normal, uncontroversial thing to say. Uh, so I think the more that people can think about this as an exercise in courage, the easier it will be for 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 people who who potentially at the moment are too afraid to speak up, too afraid to say what they believe to 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 be able to do it. And so again, you know, I'd I'd, I'd say you know what you guys are doing is is fantastic, and please keep doing it because I think it fills a uh, a really important role in society. Well, one, one thing we do on this show is we, we're trying to encourage our audience and our listeners to read more. And one way we do that is by asking all of our guests what they are reading. So, Will, what are you reading right now? Uh, I've just finished probably the best book I've read in about five years called Say, Say Nothing. And it's about the, the troubles in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, and it's just the most extraordinary book. And it's a, it's a part of history I knew nothing or next to nothing about um, so, so if you want a, a gripping read, understand a, a really kind of turbulent time in history, but it's almost presented like a thriller, say nothing is a cracker. Is that the same author who wrote the one on Big Pharma? Yeah, yeah, and I've read that one as well. Patrick Radden-Keefe. Um, is if, if that you, a good book? He's brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. 
Um, and if talk about uncomfortable truths, the, the fentanyl crisis in the US, which is now somewhat more under control, but still a massive problem is, is something which I don't think most Australians have a clear enough view of because it's not as big a problem here, thank God. But yeah, scary, scary stuff. Absolutely going to check that out. Well, we'll... Uh, everyone should listen to the Australiana podcast. Where, where can they where can they listen to that, and where can they find you online? Yeah, so my Twitter handle is at Will Kingston, uh, and uh, the Australiana podcast is under Australiana wherever you get your podcast. To use that wonderful term, um, uh, uh, and uh, and yeah, it's uh, we would we would love to have you as part of the Australiana community. Also, consider uh, subscribing to the Spectator. Yeah, thank you. Rowan Dean will be very happy to hear. Please subscribe to The Spectator Australia, $16.99 a month with one month free to boot. Best investment you'll ever make. (laughs) Very good. Well, thanks so much, Will. Uh, We've had a blast. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.